if you have like this quirky little company, in general, people are rooting for you. You know, they like rooting for the little guy and somebody that's trying something different. I think a lot of people like helping because they kind of wish they were in that position. Like, I think a lot of people have dreams of being an entrepreneur or doing their own thing, but few people actually do it. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Wasabi, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to the founder of Spikeball, Chris Rudder. Now, this is a game, if you haven't played it, it's taken over the world by storm, super popular. But what's actually funny about it is it was invented by a different guy in 1999 named Jeff. Now, Chris was actually an early player of it as a kid and kept thinking about it. And as an adult, when he had a day job, thought, huh, maybe I can go find that product and turn it into a business. And he has done exactly that. It's been on Shark Tank. Today's show, and it's all over parks and beaches across the world. If you ever want to learn about Spikeball, how to start a popular consumer brand, you are going to love this episode. Make sure you go give them love and check them out at spikeball.com. I own one. I love playing it. Number one, how people with impressive resumes might not always give the best advice. Two, the power of having a viral element built into your product. And three, why you should build a personality behind the brand. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Y'all, go sign up for the AppSumo.com newsletter. That's AppSumo.com. It is the best place online to buy software tools to help you run your online business or start one. Go to AppSumo.com. Join the newsletter to see the latest and greatest tools online. Also, special pre-show shout out to listener Greg Fulton of US of A. That just sounds like a guy that I'd be friends with. He said about the podcast, strategy and tactical business info. Great show. Every episode has strategic information on how to think about entrepreneurship and hands-on tactical startup business this week in advice. High energy and great content. Damn, I like you, Greg. I knew I was going to like you. And I love every other one of you gorgeous listeners. Seriously, I love you. I hope you're having an amazing day. I've been going through some ups and downs, but uh, knowing you guys are out there and enjoying the show and taking great action for yourself and being kind to yourself makes me feel damn great. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. What's going on today? Cash crunch at Spikeball. Some of our larger retailers are telling us they ordered way too much and sales are a bit soft. The good news is that's not unique to us. It seems like the entire games and toys section as a whole or industries are kind of feeling that. So we'll figure it out. But that's the fun for today. How do you think you're going to handle it or approach resolving this challenge? We are, you know, looking to obviously cut costs. What can we do to increase top line? Are we good from a cash position on our own or do we need to sort of find alternative external resources for additional capital to get us through? So it's not profit levels. It is uh, cash flow. So the timing of a lot of this stuff is what's kind of throwing us for a loop. So still very early. I, I haven't even had conversations with my entire team yet, at least with the appropriate people. So I'm still trying to get an update from my crew to kind of say like, all right, what exactly are we looking at? What are we facing here? And yeah, how's it all working? I am sorry to hear that. It's like sometimes I go to all this therapy and I really self-help books and I'm like, are we allowed to say we're sorry anymore? Like, you know, like I am. I'm like, that, that shit sucks. And it's, I do think, I, I would say though, I think there are problems that you can solve. Yeah, I'm confident we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, it's an interesting thing in that, you know, I started Spikeball in 2008. We've never been through a recession. Now, we're not in a recession. And you talk to one ex- expert and they'll say, yeah, it's coming. The other one will say, no, not for at least a couple of years. But there's definitely some weird stuff going on in the marketplace. And yeah, I guess if I need to take some piece, I'm hearing from others that 
this isn't a, a thing that's unique to Spikeball. It's kind of a lot of products that are on the shelves near us and the, kind of the entire industry now. That's not showing up in any headlines yet, but I got a feeling it, it will soon. Where does your mind go during this time? I do get energized by big problems. I do have a level of confidence that will get through it that I'm not sure is well-founded. You know, I can't say, oh, yeah, last time we went through this, we totally solved it. And, you know, I've got a, my MBA and I, I used to be a McKenzie consultant. I'm the smartest guy and, you know, none of that stuff. But I, I don't know, I'm oddly confident we'll figure it out. And I've got really smart people on my team and really smart people outside of the company that I go to for guidance and kind of helping me walk this through. So I've got to start uh, having some more conversations to, to kind of figure it out. You may both. Sometimes I, I think knowing our problems aren't unique is also helpful because there are people that have solved them. Like I'm going through like a breakup and like talk to my friends and they're like, yeah, you're supposed to be sad now. I'm like, oh, like, yeah, that's not, you know, I'm 40. I should have learned this shit. But <laughs> same with the business stuff where, you know, at AppSumo.com, we've, you know, had three months of negative in this year and it was looking at the budget and it's like it's putting a lot of pressure on our business and our team and uh, we need to reforecast some of these things. Yeah. You know, how do people approach it? Like w one thing I've, I've wondered within our company, you know, it's like pendulum swings, right? Like things are going well. You're like, ah, don't worry about spending because we're making so much. And then when things get tight, you're like, all right, well, cut this, but we don't want to cut too much where we stop growing. And I do wonder, and I, I'm curious how you're thinking about it with like, obviously it's, it's fresh, but like the short-term changes versus, you know, long-term changes. For instance, at AppSumo, we used to sell credits. You could buy credits at a discount. So you can get $100 AppSumo credit for 80 bucks. And guess what? It sells really well. And so we can make some money. But I think long term, that creates a very strange economy and, and puts a lot of risk on our business. Yeah. So we have to try to be mindful of what, what, do we, what could we do now that won't hurt us long? Absolutely. Like the thoughts going through my mind are, you know, historically, we've always been a the type of company that we are making long term decisions. I didn't build the company with the goal of selling it or doing a flip or anything like that. You know, we don't have outside investors that I need to please every quarter with nice numbers. So I've had that luxury of being able to make long-term decisions. And if we have an off quarter uh, or however many months in a row that aren't going well, like for the most part, finances have been ma managed in a pretty conservative fashion where we can weather it. Now it's looking like, okay, that long-term view right now may be a bit of a luxury. We need to make some short-term decisions to get through this storm, but how far do we go? And you know, I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes the future of the business to solve this short-term problem, but nobody gave me that manual when I started the company that said, yeah, here's the spectrum of green to red and these exact metrics happen and you'll know when you're in red and it's going to be crystal clear and it'll be crystal clear when you're in green and like, you know, that doesn't exist. And, you know, you can find the smartest people around and you're going to get a bunch of different opinions. And when it's all said and done, it's essentially your gut. And yeah, so it's like kind of that, that shift from, we need to make short-term decisions right now. And that is not something I or my team have a whole lot of experience with because I have been espousing long-term, let's really build a solid foundation and we need that. But right now, there's a skill set being required of us that uh, we don't have a whole lot of experience with. Sometimes on the other side of that, man, I've, I've been, we're looking for a VP of marketing and you know we're, we're looking at certain roles in this executive level at AppSumo. And 
personally, I'll speak for myself, I give too much credit sometimes to others and not enough to ourselves. And what I mean by that is like, I met this VP of marketing and I'm like, oh, he worked at all these impressive companies. He must be better than me. I think about that when I go cycling. If someone's got like really cool clothes on, I'm like, he must be a better cyclist than I am. And then you meet him or you, you ride with them and you're like, I'm actually pretty fucking good. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount. Your, I don't think you're discounting yourself, but I would give yourself definitely more credit that this is something that you're going to be able to, to resolve. And a lot of the times it makes you stronger, right? It's like you actually come out, you're like, oh, yeah. this, these limitations led us to some, some creative solutions. Yeah. And thank you for that. And I do definitely go down the, the trap of, you know, looking at somebody else's resume or looking, you know, whatever their experience is. No, they must know better. And for that experience that they were in working at that company, yes, they did. But they have never been in my shoes. They've never worked at Spike Ball. And I've talked to a handful of people that, you know, are really well known in the business world and, you know, really smart people. And some of the advice that I'll that they will give me, a lot of people are very free with advice, even when it's not asked for. And I just think to myself, like, I can't believe you would suggest we would do something like that. That is just you know, the most ridiculous thing. Of course, I don't say that. I just smile and nod. Yeah, you know, like we, if you, this is probably five, six years ago, we were posting, I think it might have been a VP of marketing uh, that we were actually looking for as well. And we had this like senior vice president of global marketing from McDonald's applied for the job, like, you know, a super senior level person. And the way the questions were answered and every, you know, we had a handful of like screening questions. He didn't even make it to the interview phase. You know, super impressive title he's got at a huge company, but the way in which he was going about things was just, you know, at the time we maybe had 20 employees and uh, I could tell that while his resume is beautiful and he had God knows, you know, so much experience, it wasn't the right experience. It wasn't what we needed. And at times I will find myself, whether I'm interviewing or talking to a consultant, I kind of get blinded by, oh, you know, Harvard MBA or, you know, McDonald's SVP of marketing or whatever. I'm thinking they know better because they have this credential and I need to check myself and realize like, wait, no, that may have been appropriate in whatever environment they were in. It allowed them to get far, but I need to keep my environment top of mind and make sure that that's what I'm leaving with. Or that's the lens I'm looking through. Easier said than done, but something I'm trying to work on. Yeah. You know, Lately in my personal life, it's been hard. In AppSumo, in my professional life, I've actually, all the challenges I'm really enjoying. I'm like, yeah, these are tough and I like it, which has been strange. In my personal life, I'm like, this is tough and I don't like how it feels. <laughs> but I've been, uh, you know, a lot of it's the mindset of like, all right, these are just, I find it interesting, the things we're solving that I've never experienced before. I'm very curious to go back to your origin story specifically, because there's two things. One, I was playing spike ball and I played against the world number three. Dude was really good. I don't even know who, some guy I met on a beach in uh, Costa Rica, this guy from uh, Yale. And I think he mentioned to me, or someone mentioned to me that you like found Spike Ball in some attic and then you like waited years to finally get the copyright. I'm totally butchering it. But like, what, what was the story? What is the story about how you actually came to be with Spike Ball? Yeah, I'll give you the abbreviated version. So yeah, I did not invent it. It came out in 1989. I was 14 years old at the time. And two doors down from me was the Kennedy family. And they were friends with my older brother. And, this, and I'd say the Kennedy family, they literally had 11 kids or have 11 kids. One of the kids stumbled on Spike Ball at a local toy store, bought it, brought it back to the neighborhood. And my brother and some of the Kennedys started playing and fell in love with it. 
I thought it was pretty cool, but I wasn't really allowed to play because I was this like annoying younger brother. But came out in 89 and the company killed it, I believe, in 91, maybe 92. So it wasn't even around for like two years before the company abandoned ship and kind of gave up on it. So fast forward to 2003, I believe it was. So 12, 13 years later, I'm now an adult, out of college, working, and I go on a trip to Hawaii with those same friends, with the Kennedys and my brother and some others. And Kennedys brought this beat up old spike ball set from the 80s. And that was the first time I had really played it. And I really got the bug for it. And I'm like, this game is awesome. And as we were playing, strangers would walk up to us and ask us about it. You know, where can I get it? That looks cool. And we started having conversations like, huh, I wonder if we could like actually bring this thing back to life. So we went home from that vacation and we did what most people do with business ideas, which is nothing. You just talk about it for a couple of years. <laughs> and I got sick of the talk and I said, all right, guys, I'm going to talk to some attorneys and see if we can actually do this. I have no idea how all this works. And the attorneys said, the trademark has been expired for, I don't know, 10 plus years. So literally nobody owns the name to Spikeball anymore. And there never was a patent on the product. So you guys can basically do what you want. So we did track down the inventor of the game and uh, reached out and, you know, wanted to work with him, you know, talk about bringing it back to life and, you know, didn't get to a place where we were able to get a deal done. And we went ahead and did it on our own. We had to file, I don't know, we paid like 800 bucks for the trademark. And uh, we eventually did get a patent for a change to the product we made. But me, my brother, my cousin, Tim and Pat Kennedy, and two other childhood friends chipped in a total of, I think it was about $100,000. So maybe 15 grand ahead. And that was enough to start the company. That was enough for us to buy like a thousand spike ball sets, have it redesigned, have the packaging, logo, everything. And then launched in 2008. And I ran it then for my, by myself for five years as like a side job. You know, I didn't really know if it was going to turn into anything. And I had little children at home. So I didn't, you know, the company didn't have enough money to pay me full time. So I had to keep my day job for those five years. And then the company in 2013, we had a million dollars in annual revenue with zero full-time employees in 2013. And that's when I was able to quit my job and go full-time. That is a wild story. <laughs> that is okay. I, yeah. You know, I've seen the pieces of it to hear from you is, does it sound, how does it feel when you say it out loud? What does it make you think of? It's bizarre. I mean, I feel so just fortunate. Um, and I think of like, you know, the path that I thought I was going to go down in life. I have a degree in photojournalism. That's how far from business I thought my life was going to be. I thought I was going to be a newspaper photographer, or a magazine photographer. I wouldn't have guessed in a million years that I'd be running a company, let alone a sporting goods company. But I you know, feel so incredibly fortunate. And, you know, had there not been that fluke of the Kennedys back in 1989, randomly buying this game, God knows where my life would be right now. And then the guy who invented it, you went to him and he didn't want to sell the rights to it, even though you didn't really have to buy the rights. I think you did the honorable thing trying to go to the original person. Yeah, we didn't need to. Our attorneys are like, yeah, nobody owns anything. So you guys essentially do what you want. So and then what did he say to you? Like, no, I don't want to sell it to you. And you're like, well, we're just gonna do it anyways. We weren't offering to buy anything because there was nothing to be bought, right? Like, even though he was the inventor, legally, nobody owned anything. So we wanted to go into business together. 
I think maybe we spoke two or three times and couldn't quite get a straight answer on how things would work. Or I think he felt that some of the rights were still intact when, you know, anybody can go to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website and look up and see what what's active and what's not. So, you know, we had reached out and just couldn't quite get a general direction of how he would want things to go and what actually was accurate or not. So we just kind of, both parties just kind of stopped calling each other. And as I spoke with my, the guys that eventually became shareholders, we said, yeah, let's just do it on our own and see what happens. Has he tried to sue you guys? No. I've met him a couple times. He's a super nice guy. I get the feeling he'd like to be involved um, or I'm not exactly sure what his ideal scenario is, but no, there's been no legal action from anybody. And the few times I've met him, he's been more than nice to me. How'd you actually get it manufactured? So you, you're like, you got the patents, it's now public, you have an idea for it. How do you actually get like a net and like the plastic? Did you go to Home Depot? What would you do? No. So uh, Tim Kennedy, he at the time worked for McDonald's corporate or actually worked for Ronald McDonald House, the nonprofit arm of it. He somehow knew the guy that ran the company that makes all the Happy Meals for McDonald's. You know, think of all the little plastic toys that go in, like little minions and stuff like that. So we, he introduced me to him, and that was our first manufacturer. You know, they were a gigantic company, and you know, they're used to getting orders of tens of millions of units from McDonald's and other companies like that. And we call up and we're like, yeah, can you make 1,000 spike ball sets? But they were cool. They, they eventually fired us. We were just, I think, too small of a client for them. That made perfect sense. But they're the ones that we launched with and then eventually found a, uh, some partners that were much better, you know, a much better fit for us. But yeah, and I didn't know anything about that, right? Like, I, I don't know anything about manufacturing overseas, let alone the US or anywhere. But I think I'm pretty good at networking and kind of finding experts in whatever area it is that I need expertise. That's largely been a, a big portion of sort of how I think we've gotten this far. How do you find experts? Uh, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. I'm a big fan of Twitter and friends and family. In general, if I don't know or if I know that there's somebody out there that knows better, I'm comfortable pushing my ego to the side and knowing that the answer isn't coming from me. I need to go find somebody else. So yeah, if I read an article in a magazine about somebody that is super smart and that I want to learn from, I'll do what I can to find them, reach out to them, offer to buy them a coffee or send them a free spike ball set in exchange for their time. I don't know. I think a lot of people like definitely friends and family, but other people like if you have like this quirky little company, in general, people are rooting for you. You know, they like rooting for the little guy and somebody that's trying something different. I think a lot of people like helping because they kind of wish they were in that position. Like, I think a lot of people have dreams of being an entrepreneur, of doing their own thing, but few people actually do it. So if somebody calls up and that is doing it and says, hey, I'd love to, you know, as much as I hate the term, pick your brain about whatever, you know, plenty of people ignored me when I asked that. But if I'd asked 10 people, one or two would say yes. And it worked. Or it's been working, I should say. There's a quote I like around that lately, which is like, it's a numbers game. So increase your probability and you'll increase the possibility. 
And I was like, I kind of like that, you know, yeah. just like keep hitting those numbers and eventually they, they come through. Mm-hmm. Well, take one step back. So you had this idea, you thought maybe we could do it. How long until that so you could actually sell it? And then how did you make your first sales? Yeah, we incorporated in late 07 and actually sold our first set. I think it was June 1st, 08. I think work began in earnest. I don't remember exactly, but I'd probably say in late 06. So maybe year and a half, two years before we actually launched. And when we did launch, um, it was only on spikeball.com. And I remember my first sale was to a childhood friend of mine, Chris Small. And a lot of those first sales were names that I recognized. <laughs> they were all friends and family that you know wanted to help out. And I don't think really, most of them, I don't think had any interest in Spikeball. They were like, ah, it's 50 bucks. Chris is trying this thing. I'll, I'll help them out. And, but the thing that we have that a lot of products don't, there's a viral element built into our product, right? One person buys it. They now have to go find three friends to actually play. And when they do play, they're usually playing in a public environment, whether that be a beach, a park, a college campus. So when you buy a spike ball set, you don't realize it. But when you play, you're actually marketing for us. You know, that's been a a very critical element. Not only do we want you to buy the set, but we want you to play it as often as possible. What were you doing before this? Advertising sales. So I worked for the Xbox division of Microsoft for four years or so. I worked for Monster.com. The job that I quit to go full-time was with Live Nation. So if like Coca-Cola wanted their ads to show up on Ticketmaster.com when somebody searched for Beyonce tickets, you know, I'd be one of the people helping to put together those advertising deals. One thing you, you commented on in passing that I thought was as interesting as your, your dream when you started it. And I think you know the dreams change. Right. And, you know, when I started AppSumo, it was like, can I make $3,000 a month so I could finally do whatever I want and work with people I want? It wasn't to make a billion dollar company. And, and even to this day, I don't care how much more money we make or not. It's like, I want to grow the business. I want to work with cool people, promote products. What was your dream? In starting Spikeball? Yeah. My goal with Spikeball was if it could become big enough someday to where it could help pay for a family vacation, that would be success to me. Never did I think I could actually quit my job and go full time. So that was to start it. But then one thing when I first started doing the work, and you know, literally sitting at my desk in my living room by myself at midnight, I'd literally get goosebumps as I was doing work or replying to emails or whatever, because I was experiencing this thing at quote work that I had never experienced before, which was I was making decisions, I had control. And that was such a foreign thing to me, you know, at my past sales jobs, they were really big companies. And for the most part, the playbook was already written and it was handed to me and said, Chris, go do this. I really had no say in how we went to market, what we were selling, et cetera. And, you know, at Microsoft, you're one person of what, 100,000 people or God knows how many employees they have. But at Spikeball, I learned, wait, I get to make decisions and I get to sort of shape the, the growth and the future and I can mold this thing into what I want. And as I started doing the work and, you know, we finished that first year, uh, revenue was, I think, $11,000. So nobody's getting rich. It was 11000 more than we started with, but it was $11,000. But I was loving it because I was in control. And as I talk with my team today, you know, autonomy is huge at Spikeball. So even if it's your first job out of college, 
your leash is very long. We hired you because you're smart as shit. We trust you. You're not going to have to work two years at the company for us to trust you. We trust you on day one. And yes, we have some goals that we want you to do, but how you do that and how you get to them, that is up to you. And that's not just if we hire a seasoned executive, that's entry-level people as well. So I'm trying to think of my experience at these big jobs and how I was just so disconnected and you know, I was not into the culture, the environment and all of that. I think a lot of it was because I didn't have any control. I didn't have any autonomy. I didn't really have much of a say in anything. So if I do the opposite of that at this company that I'm now running, I think things should work out. And we average maybe one person quits spike ball like every other year. Our turnover is like crazy low, maybe even once every three years. I don't know, something like that. Like it's, it's nuts. So something tells me people like working here. So yeah. Congratulations, man. Good for you. Hopefully this is like, I know you're facing some the challenge today, but hopefully just the conversation, you're like, some good shit, you know, come a long ways doing it the way you're, you know, doing it your way. Yeah. What advice do you have? You know, a lot of the people in our audience uh, that are out there have day jobs like you did, you know, and, and they have to do it as a side hustle, like maybe creating content or creating a physical product business. What helped you persist? What helped you be successful with it? Maybe share a little more about that. Yeah, I think one thing that allowed me to, you know, I did it for five years on my own before quitting the job and going full time. And one thing that afforded me that time was I did not go out and raise money. You know, it was friends and family that essentially one time, I think it was 100 grand the first time. And I think a year later, it was maybe like 20 grand or something like that. But that afforded me the time to learn what worked and what didn't. And to learn organically what worked and what didn't. And I wasn't spending all of my time trying to optimize Facebook ad spend or some other uh, metric that is not really that critical to the company. I was able to spend time getting to know what the, who the customers were, why they were buying. I think, especially in the tech world, I feel like it's almost a default. If you're going to start a company, you have to raise money. and. In some cases, you do. But if I had any advice, I'd tell the entrepreneur or ask the entrepreneur to really give it some thought. Can you keep your day job for a year or two and learn if you've got some uh, market product fit? Or can you get some work done before you need to go raise money? You know, and yeah, and I realize I'm in a very privileged position where me and my brother and cousin and other friends, we were able to write those checks. And I totally understand not everybody's networks can do that. So I was very lucky to be in that position. But I do look at other friends and other people that start companies and they just immediately, they don't even question whether or not they need to raise money. They just go do it because that's what you do. You want to get your headline in TechCrunch, right? And all that stuff. And for some companies, that is a perfect route. And that's what you need to do. So I'm not trying to shit on it and say, don't do it. I am trying to say, at least think of the alternative first. I love that. How did you balance the time? Because you have a family, you have a day job. Was this like nights, weekends, mornings? I don't have a family yet, but I'm kind of like, yeah, you have to put in the time and it's gonna, you're going to have to give up something. Absolutely. I launched uh, the company in June of 08. You know, that's when we officially started selling. My first child, Beckett, who's 14 now, he was born in March of 08. So I had screaming baby in diapers. Um, and then Elliot was born the next year. And then my daughter Hattie was born two years after that. 
so lots of screaming babies and dirty diapers. Um, but when I was doing spike ball work, they were asleep. So I'd you know, come home from the day job, maybe around six or so, hang out with them for a few hours. They're in bed by eight or nine o'clock. Spike ball work begins at nine and would end around one or two in the morning. And, you know, our, our first quote warehouse was my basement. So I had like 800 spike ball sets in my basement. And at midnight or so is when I would do shipping. So I'd go down to the basement and grab one box. If I had a really good day of sales, I'd grab two. And yeah, the late night post office was maybe two miles from my house. And you know, I'm literally handwriting the labels. In the first couple of years, I didn't even know I could print labels. Um, once I learned you could print labels, like my productivity just through the roof. But I think I'm a very pragmatic, practical person. And I'm like, no, I can't afford a warehouse. I've got all this space in the basement. Why would I not use it? And oh, yeah, that weird kind of 7-Eleven-like store and that kind of sketchy neighborhood. Yeah, they've got that little corner that has a post office thing in it. So I can, and they're open 24-7. So I'll be the only guy shipping at midnight on a Tuesday in January in Chicago. And that's fine. How did Spikeball become such a major brand? Because I feel like it's a thing where if you talk to people that are outside, like, you know, Spikeball, like, yeah, I know Spikeball. What'd you do for that? I think it was a million turns of the flywheel. Uh, you know, some people will ask me like, oh, Shark Tank, when you guys were on Shark Tank, that must have been the one thing that really launched you and, you know, what turned you into this rocket ship. And I'm like, that definitely helped. But we were growing like crazy well before that. I think we've built the brand, um, and this initially wasn't by design. It was just because I was curious. Like, I want people to know there's humans behind the brand. I want there to be a personality. And that personality is not coming from consultants or studies or anything. You know, those first five years, it was my personality. And I would, on social media posts and in email newsletters, I communicated with the customers as if they were my friends. So I would not say hi to them. I would say, hey. And I would talk shit on social media to them and just have fun with them. And I encourage my team to this day, you know, I'm not doing any of the posts anymore, but the team is. But if you look at our posts, you will feel that personality. You know, you're not seeing beautiful models where every photo is perfect and everything. You're seeing user generated content that we're not paying for or, you know, we're not like having it artificially made. We're essentially reposting stuff that people are paying for. And you'll see tons of celebrities posting our products as well. We don't pay for that. They're posting it because they genuinely love it. And the consumer is smart enough to see that that is an organic love for the brand that Rob Gronkowski is posting, or that the Jonas Brothers, they play before they go out on stage. And they started posting about us. Casey Neistat, the band 21 Pilots, you name the NBA team or MLB team, and they're all playing. And we haven't paid for any of it. It's all happened organically. And I think they all are attracted to it because the brand, you can feel this human element behind it. And it's taken time. You know, we don't spend much on advertising. We don't have a PR firm, but I'd say organic is, is the word. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us are looking for that one expert, one silver lining. And sometimes it, it is that, but it's also a lot of things that have added up. For people that are out there thinking, hey, I want to start my own business. Would you recommend looking for kind of old? I, I was just thinking, I was like, oh, if Chris had to go out and start another business today, would, would he go out and look for old products that, you know, maybe be forgotten and re, you know, reintroduce them or something else? That might work. I think what I think the reason I 
relaunched Spikeball was because it was something that I genuinely loved. The goal was not, can I build this company that's going to do millions of dollars in sales? It was, I think this will be a fun side project. And it's a product that I also genuinely love. So if I had stumbled on, I don't know, let's say an old uh, design for a coffee pot that had expired and I could relaunch it, I don't think I'd have the passion to stay up until 2 a.m. and do all the work because I don't even drink coffee. So if you go find that product and maybe there's potential financial for financial upside, but you don't have a genuine love for it, I got a feeling you're probably not going to be willing to run the marathon. You're going to be looking for more of a sprint. And if you're only going to sprint, you may not succeed. What do you think you did different than the guy who created it? What's the difference? Because like, I think of it like a there's a there's a bar near me called like Half Step or something, and it failed pretty quickly. And this other bar now has a two month wait. They made it a tiki theme, right? And it's got all this, you know, all fancy shit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, huh, same place, same location, same type of business, just do a different way now is 100 times more successful. So I'd love to hear your, your opinion on that for you guys. I would guess that the one that failed, somebody was purely looking at it through the lens of a financial return. And that was it. I got a feeling the people that have the line waiting outside, not only is the owner way into the general tiki concept or whatever it is, but the staff is as well. And the customers can feel that. The staff isn't working there just because it's a job. They're probably working there because it's a great environment. It's fun. It's quirky. There's something different. And there's something you can feel. Whereas if a business is being optimized by purely by spreadsheets, that dramatically reduces, I think, the, the sort of human connection. And I'd say that's very apparent in a consumer brand or a retail business like a bar. Maybe not as much as like a B2B business where that maybe isn't as important. I don't really have the B2B experience, but that would be my guess on why one bar worked and one didn't. But I, I could be way off. That's my guess. I'm in spike ball. I love playing. I wish I had more friends so I could play more often. Uh, <laughs> but spikeball.com, I'll tell everyone to check it out. Chris, thank you for the time, man. Awesome. Appreciate it, Noah. And uh, I'll definitely tell people to go buy it. And uh, look forward to checking in with you in uh, 6, 12 months and, and hearing uh, how it's going. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Hope you're uh, doing well as well. Thank you, man. Take care. That is a wrap. Hope you love the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go buy Spikeball at spikeball.com. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go play some Spikeball together. And before you go, tweet at me or slide in my DMs at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you thought of the episode. I want to hear from you. I love you. Also, go sign up to my newsletter, sendfox.com slash Noah. We send a juicy email out each and every week. I think you're going to love it. I know you will. Sendfox.com slash Noah. And while you're there, create your own newsletter at sendfox.com. It's free. Also, check out our YouTube channel. We've been putting out so much fun content for you to inspire you on a business journey. That's youtube.com slash okdork. youtube.com slash okdork. Finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. These people are literally like just the best in the world. Top 10 out of 10. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing these episodes. He always makes them sound so damn good. I hope I see you in Europe this summer. Thank you to Mitchell. I love you, dog. Jeremy, George, Hubert, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the Dork Team for all the magic you do. Shout out to Garrett as well. Garrett is like my godsend. Thank you, God, for sending Garrett in my life, man. He's such a good dude. And this guy, I met him because I bought his WordPress plugin about six, seven years ago. We've been working together ever since. And he's just like a great fucking dude. There needs to be more men like you in the world, man. Thank you for being you, and I appreciate that uh, we get to enjoy this life together. Have a legendary day. What's your favorite high school memory? <laughs> <laughs>